Welcome back, Dreadfuls. You're listening to another episode of Left for Dread, the horror podcast for everyone from newbies to fanatics. We are not a spoiler-free podcast, so make sure you've seen the movie or movies we're talking about before you listen. I'm one of your hosts, Rye. And I'm your other host, Chris. And today, it's 425. So tomorrow, when this episode drops, it's 426. It is officially Alien Day, and we have teamed up once again with the amazing cast of iron silver and salt the the amazing monster hunting podcast uh with chris adrian and will uh welcome back monster hunters welcome back to leopard dread Woo. thanks for having us guys great to be here so we just recorded the first half of our crossover where we re- recorded uh, an episode on how to identify and how to kill a xenomorph and prospects aren't good because it's one tough son of a bitch. But I will say, as a sneak preview, identifying it wasn't the hard part. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's a, a weird spider crab thing that lays eggs in your body. And yeah, but here we are coming on to Leopard Dread for the other half of the crossover, where we're gonna just be talking free association about the original 1979 sci-fi horror classic Alien. Uh, directed by Ridley Scott, written by D- Dan O'Bannon, as well as Ronald Suchet, and featuring an ensemble cast like Tom Skerritt, Sigourney Weaver, uh, Veronica Cartwright, uh, John Hurt, Ian Holm. Just for a quick recap about the film, uh, this is pulling from IMDb, quote, After a space merchant vessel receives an unknown transmission as a distress call, one of the crew is attacked by a mysterious life form, and they are and they soon realize that its life cycle has merely begun. So the first thing I want to talk about is like everyone's first experiences with this uh, amazing film. Yeah, I'll start. So I remember watching the very original Alien movie way back when I was a kid, um, or like a small kid. Um, with my parents, and I remember it freaking the hell out of me. And because I was and am afraid of my own shadow, I didn't touch it again until, I guess, in the mid-2000s when Alien vs. Predator came out. Because that was the first of the Alien franchise movies that I actually remember seeing. Like, I remember watching the original Alien way, way back, but I don't really, I didn't really remember anything about it. But I remember watching Alien vs. Predator and be like, oh my god, this is so cool! Um... And, uh, of course, obviously, for researching for these podcasts, I just watched the original Alien movie again. And I was sitting there going like, wow, this is really good. (laughs) So that's kind of my uh, five minutes or less, I guess, soapbox on my experiences with this franchise. Yeah, so my first impression of this, I saw it it way too little. Like, however little I was, I was way too little to see it. But it was terrifying to me. Um, and not, I mean, mostly because the xenomorph was just super scary and the tension it created. But when seeing it as an adult, it raises it to a new level of horror just because, like, you're in space, like, essentially, like the tagline says, where no one can hear you scream. And it is just the thought of being alone with no help or resources, and you just are trapped in a cage of the xenomorph. Yeah, that's terrifying all on its own. So, I mean, the basic physical fear is like the the version I saw when I was little, but the more metaphysical aloneness and terror, that's the the terror I caught as an adult. So it's absolutely terrifying, and I love it. 
I mean, personally, I like it was. It's it's a movie that's so ingrained in the cultural zeitgeist. I don't really have a point where I could say yes, this was my first exposure to it. Because I'm like pretty sure Courage the Cowardly Dog did an episode that parodied Alien. Um, you know, it's at dis it's at like Disney World and stuff. It's so I actually I honestly don't have a point where to I can and I can say yes, this is where I first encountered it. So I I honestly don't know what to tell you. Uh, similar to that, like I I honestly can't tell you the first time I've watched the movie in full, but uh. Uh, I could definitely tell you like the two main pieces of cultural touchstones where I was first inundated to it. Uh, one being Spaceballs, uh, where John Hurt came back, uh, started killing over the diner, uh, and then this another chestburster bursts out of him. Uh, he gives like the line, "Oh, not again!" And then the chestburster starts singing like the Michigan J Frog song. It starts jiving and it runs off. Um, and then two. It was the it was a Disney World, uh, the movie studio ride, um, where they had this one section uh, where like alarms are going off, and then there was an animatronic version of Ripley with a flamethrower, and then the aliens pop out of the wall, and it was really cool. That really uh, inspired my imagination as a, as a kid. Um, so I remember. I do also remember watching all the movies like out of order, like because wherever it popped up on TV, like in the middle of like some alien marathons. I remember seeing bits and pieces of like Alien Resurrection and then Aliens. Um, but I, I'd say I wasn't un uh, maybe until like 14 or 15 uh, when I actually saw the, the full movie uh, for um, in, in the first time. And uh, that did a number on me, uh, I, because um, I always knew I was kind of like a weird kid. Um, like I remember, I, I loved all monsters and uh, and all that weird genre stuff, and like just seeing like the design of the creature and like the pacing and like how scary it is. Even even watching it yesterday, like like Adrian said, it still holds up. It's still terrifying and. Uh, um, and obviously it just bled into everywhere else in, the, in pop culture. So I really appreciate like its legacy. Uh, Rai, how about you? I remember the very first time I saw this movie. I remember thinking that it was fine. Like it didn't scare me. And that just goes to show you where my brain is. But it, it was, I mean, I knew, I recognized that it was a good movie, but I thought it was fine. I was like, okay, this is, I get it. Um, I'm slightly more afraid of this movie now as an adult than I was watching this growing up. Because the idea of just being out there in space in utter silence all by yourself in a contained ship is just terrifying like are the isolation saying, are you saying in space no one can hear you scream a hundred percent no one can hear you do anything in space because you're there by yourself <laughs> and it's enough to make you or go fucking nuts so yeah that that's that's slightly more horrifying yeah. now as an adult than it is as a child well, given the similarity of that situation to the current one where we're all quarantining, I guess it could be said that in space no one can hear you quarantine 
<laughs> all right, all right. So the exit's right here. I'm I just thought gonna you were gonna say like Quarren scream. I thought you were gonna go that way uh, with it. That would have been much better. That would have been much better. Damn it, I missed it. Missed opportunity. It's fine. We're still here. We. Still here. Um, <laughs> I I love the. There's all these memes going around, like it, because of our political climate. Like there's one really awesome rendering of ripley with joe as the cat uh and it has that classic line in like this really fancy biblical calligraphy script and she has like a golden hail in the back it's like yes praise ripley our patron saint she's like the the, the i after watching it it's been at least like two years since i've watched this film and like it surprised me like at how like she like I, I I mean, she's clearly, she has the leadership, she has the skills, she has the know-how, and no one listened to her. No one listened to her uh, until like an hour and 10 minutes into the film uh, of the theatrical cut, where like Parker, uh, one of the engineers, actually decided to like respect her chain of, or respect her authority and actually listen to her. Because like from the get-go, Ripley was following protocol. She wanted to give the 24-hour quarantine. She didn't want to like Kaden, and she was right to. They should have. I mean, uh, yeah. Uh, so was what? Well, did they not listen because they were all dudes? I mean, was she the only woman no, on that was, expedition? Um, Lambert. So a woman there. So it's it's interesting with the 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 dynamics between the two, like, or I guess the dynamics of how the characters were set up. Because when Bannon and Scott and she said all work together, they met. They they gave them all like. They they gave the characters like unisex names uh, because at the time a lot of the a lot of the at least like the dialogue and the character relationships developed organically on set. Um, um, really, Scott like he uh, storeboarded like everything to a T, like all, all like the big establishing shots and like all of, like the interiors and like the big capstone scenes, like the chestburster scene or the alien attacking. Uh, brett uh but other than that like a lot of the dialogue and the character relationships and the the, the dynamics and the tensions between each other uh were all developed like more or less on set um so um related to that ripley was uh, intentionally uh meant to be a guy um but then uh they were just so blown away by uh Sigourney weaver's performance um and yeah, but yeah, the I mean, there is like this weird, I I I guess, patronizing attitude they had towards Ripley. Like, um, like the engineers would like uh, rat, uh, joke her for being too hard, too much of a hard ass, too strict, and she's she's the only one like doing her job to a T and being sensible. And you know, Ripley deserves more respect percent i think i was texting chris about this one of the things that was such a joy for me to watch now was how simple alien is in terms of the concept of the movie and the way they the way they executed it everything is supremely simple and i don't mean that in a bad way he scott created the simplest of scenarios and manages to create even more tension out of that that allows you 
to get the shit scared out of you. And I think that there's something to be said for that. And I know that it is a point that we always come back to whenever we go back to sort of like the foundations of horror. Um, is sometimes simpler is the better idea. You don't need anything. You don't really need a whole bunch of crazy shit to properly execute a scary movie. You take an unknown stalker, put people in space, and put them in danger. Done. And it became a cult classic. Well, it worked with aliens, not so much Jason X, you know. The only good part about Jason X is the nitrogen scene. Oh, yeah. That's killing yeah, the movie, yeah. but the rest of the movie is <laughs> shit. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> just to just to play off that though, um I am I guess horror in general and like I guess where human superstition is based off of is fear of the unknown, right? Like we don't know everything about it, so therefore it's scary to us. Um and I guess that's kind of what the xenomorph is, you know? Kind of like this big creature that we don't really know anything about that's really strong. Like how do we beat it? We don't know, so we just have to kind of stay alive. And I guess it kind of stirs that primal instinct. Yeah, Xenomorph is probably one of the most original, and I would say one of the scariest movie monsters just sort of ever put to film. So, mm-hmm. and of course, like uh, uh, I think to this day, like the John Hurt uh, chest versus scene still rated as like top five easily scariest moments of all time in cinema. Um, Scariest guess, like, part of the movie. Yeah, it's great. Um, it's, it's like a giant capstone. Like I, I know, I know, with the original script or like one of the very early drafts of it. Um, I know they were trying to pitch it to someone at a before it went to 20th Century Fox. It was they were trying to pitch it to another studio, and like I know that executive, like hated the script or like it was, um thought it was like mediocre but like uh just the fact um um so before it was rewritten like that's that scene was like they 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 considered like just doing this movie just because of that scene alone uh but then one of uh one of bannon's partners uh convinced him to wait for a better better deal and then later uh this was like two like a couple years maybe like a year and a half after Star Wars came out, which was in 1977, um, you know, there's this incredible boom of sci-fi um, becoming like a mainstream uh, genre for for the for the the movie making business. So, uh, like Star Wars had just come out, and then Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So, uh, 20th Century Fox uh, came in. They were they they were they owe a lot of credit towards uh giving uh making this project a, a, a reality uh because they were very very interested at the time uh to pick up as many sci-fi products as possible so they wanted they were looking at that for that next light in the bottle uh so they just happened upon uh the script and they they instrumental building with this really diverse really crazy team like because um like really scott he only directed one feature before this it was some period piece um involving like french 
French um, swordsman. Um, and then uh, through 20th Century Fox, they they got the the talent of like Mobius and H.R. Geiger. And like these guys were so instrumental in creating like the really visceral, iconic looks of of the aliens. Now, is this now when you talk about that team that helped with the visual, does that include um the practical effects? Because yes. I mean just yes. the the chest bursting and the to look of the the xenomorphs and it just even today it holds up really well. It does. And like HR uh, uh, Geiger or Giger, I'm sorry. Um he's just for those who don't know, he's a Swiss surrealist painter. Um and his work I I I uh, during co- especially during college and high school, like I just ate up everything Geiger because like he has like this really crazy um, art style. It's 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 uh, just defined a lot by like exploration of sexuality uh, and like he's also super influenced by Lovecraft um, and all of his work has like this this mind bending biomechanical look. So it blends like like the female and male bodies together with like weird organic const or i'm sorry inorganic monstrous machine-like constructs and um so in um like the design of the alien itself came literally like literally off of the page of one of his art books it's called like uh necron uh his art book is called the necronomicon and that particular piece it was called Necrom four and five. It's basically the alien that we see in the movie is virtually unchanged um, from H.R. Giger's original vision. Like, and they basically just brought Giger in. Giger had so much to do with designing the alien, and like, basically, uh, Scott gave Giger free reign to design LZ four twenty seven and the original spaceship um because like his vision his way of looking at things is just so surreal and, and alien like to begin with um uh, and that's just opposed to the rest of the production team where they went for this really practical a uh, really realistic version of of like the spaceships of the the, the stromo um and it's just like having that type of diversity uh just really all these disparate elements just made this crazy alchemy in the end and i can't I just still amazed by it. Yeah, that's something I actually really enjoyed about the original film is how strange and different that the ship is, the alien ship is. Mm-hmm. Um, like when you first see the space jockey, it you don't even really know what the hell it is that you're looking at. Like it's really hard to tell where the ship begins and where the alien at, where the ship begins and ends, and where the alien begins and stuff like that. So I think it's just something I really appreciated was. They it just looks so weird, but it does raise the question: Has first contact been made in this world? Uh, so actually, um, I don't remember. I think this might have been this might have been part of one of the official novelizations. Um, so that original distress beacon that they found when which attracted the the Destrobo to that planet to beforehand. So apparently, the canon behind that is. Um, there was this. Oh, there's a spacecraft that um landed on this this small rock. Uh, and there was like a a civilization before them, I guess like 
either either like the eggs or the xenomorphs were native to that planet or they were brought there by somewhere else but the space jockeys or the 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 race that these belong to collected some of these samples and they brought it back to the ship uh one of them got loose um so so in the movie we see the space jockey or the guy piloting um the alien craft and you you see in that shot or that sequence it also got chest bursted and it's been long dead and fossilized um so that became a xenomorph that ran rampant i think they tried to kill it um because they're part of the transmission they were they were broadcasting they were saying how the ship got damaged because they were trying to kill this thing uh now they're trapped um and the 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 stress beacon that they picked up which sounded a whole bunch like a like a bunch of aliens screaming um it was it wasn't an sos it was a warning to like stay away from this planet our crew didn't know what that was um so yes long story short there was first contact uh the space jockeys weren't native to that planet, so they were just like another. No, I mean, did, was there first contact between people and other alien species? Oh, uh, I think it is. I mean, at least from what Ash said, like they were just as surprised and excited about making first contact. I mean, I, I guess that's the reason why they were so excited for the alien. And there was like, oh, nothing else matters. Bring back the alien so we can, so the company can use it instead of experimenting it. So. It meant that they hadn't discovered something like that alien before. It doesn't mean that aliens hadn't been like found. It could have just been that species for all we know. I don't know now. That's a really good question. I mean, obviously like, like androids or robots are part of normal society in this. Well, yeah, put it this way. If, if Ash's function as an android was to, put human consciousness aside and be able to execute priority one, which was take the alien alive and bring it back to be studied or not alive, whatever, take it back to be studied in order to get to that point, to build an Android, to be able to do that. Some form of alien life must've been discovered because what, a to, human to make androids. No, well, no, 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 no. To create an android to have that function, because a human would do exactly what the humans did, which was let their emotions get in the way and fight for their own lives. An android it was willing to do whatever it took. So an argument, I guess, could be made for some form of alien life might have been discovered already in order for them to be like, okay, we need to have, help with To this. have that protocol, yeah. Mm, exactly. I mean... Uh in the context of this movie, we don't know what the company is. I mean, obviously later we do, but we we could we could think of anything. Maybe like this this company collects in alien artifacts, or they want bioweapons, and they've done it before with other aliens, and now they want a new specimen. Well, also I think that this just goes to show that androids are just little stinkers, and they cannot be trusted because they've always got their uh, their little agendas going. So. This became, oh, this but then again, a robot. <laughs> first law of robotics. Uh, although, doesn't Ash have like that issue, like where he basically he has his overriding function from the company of "Hey, bring back the alien," clashing with "I kind of want to keep these people alive." Does that ever come up? Or led to its mental breakdown? Then, uh, I mean, actually, I mean, I, I'll be curious to to rewatch it with some of the deleted scenes but when i was watching this time around i thought it was just kind of I, I i thought 
there was a, a piece missing of the story where like Ash suddenly went homicidal and like wanted to take out Ripley. Um, what are your thoughts because on that? the humans were getting in his way of getting the alien, so I think that uh, triggered the response that he had, and he tried to kill Ripley. Like he was torn between protocols, not because he wanted to save the humans. I don't think. He did not look like he wanted to save Ripley. <laughs> he, he ripped her hair out and threw her. He wanted to kill her because she was getting in the way. When you think about it, like Ash's company property is like, oh, yes, uh, priority one, nothing else matters. So I guess at that point, Ash thought it was more trouble to keep the humans alive. So he just, you know, he just wants to keep the. Actually, that, that's a good question because I, I, um, I wonder if the, the xenomorph. Knows that um, Ash isn't human, so if it, it if it or quote unquote like in, inorganic, so would the xenomorph recognize Ash as a threat, or would it leave it alone? Yeah, it would definitely attack him. I mean, look what happened to Bishop and aliens. Oh, that is true. Okay, never mind. I did forget about that. Well, I think in terms of Ash, Ash and the rest of the crew, Ash probably calculated that if he told the rest of the crew, like what the mission from mother was, they would probably not want to go along with it. So he probably thought it was better to either keep them in the dark or get rid of them if they like found out. Well, I can, if I can offer up an alternative theory as to why Ash is so batshit crazy. Oh yeah. So maybe he was just really mad because of his failed attempt at becoming a Pokemon master in his youth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> and then, yeah, he was just assigned to this ship and he was like, God damn it, I was going to catch them all. And then he just starts like, and this is the one thing that he was trying to catch to rekindle that, you know. And then they're getting in the way of him relieving his uh, glory days. So he just kills all, he tries to kill all the humans. What? So he can, what type would a xenomorph even be? Poison Dark? <laughs> Poison Dark is pretty apt. Yeah, I think so. Can one make... I was going to say, can one make a case for dragon type? Hmm. Oh. It doesn't breathe fire, though. It doesn't, but it breathes acid, and acid dragons can be a thing. Oh, okay. Good point. Good point. Oh, there you oh, go. I think. There. Yes, they can. Yeah, no, there are black, uh, black dragons breathe acid, I believe, or poison or something. That's, like, probably the worst kind, quite honestly. <laughs> I mean, I think they're always, like, evil, too, so. Ah, so you can always count on them to breathe acid on you 100% of the time. Yes. So I was wondering, like, what is everyone's favorite moment from this film? Ash's demise. 100%. It is, it is probably still the scariest thing in this movie, but that... I mean, I don't think the alien is like that terrifying. The jump scares that they have in the movie from building all this tension are phenomenal. And I think that the design of the alien is really well done. But Ash's scene and the scene with just the head is probably the scariest thing in this movie because he's covered in like milk and what looks like chicken skin. <laughs> So Yum. that's that's scarier to me than anything else that happens in this movie. And like his, his performance is so chilling, like it's so detached yet cynical, like like sinister. And uh, so he he gets that that one last sarcastic, 
line like you have my sympathies and he gives like this weird grin i was like oh so good i mean i I don't i don't know if he was necessarily lying about you have my sympathies because that sounds like a good luck assholes to me (laughs) yeah that that also works well if if i can be a commonplace plebe here the chest bursting scene was definitely a favorite oh i was gonna say that one too yeah absolutely when you watch it at i mean at this point in you know this point in our culture and this point in our like age and knowledge and stuff like that, you know what's going to happen. But imagine if you're somebody in the 70s watching that for the first time and that scene like happens, you're probably screaming like, what the fuck, you know? I mean, so sort of the actors, like the, the, the story behind the filming of that is just as talked about legendary as the scene itself. Um, it, it, it's wild to me. They, they shot that scene in one take with four different cameras. Prior to that, the actors knew that something was going to burst out of John Hurt, but they didn't know what, and they didn't know how grisly it would be. Uh, so they put John Hurt in like this sort of rig. All the all the reactions of the of the cast members is like it's like genuine like shock and terror because uh, they didn't realize like how forceful like the chest burst would come out of him. Um, and like my favorite bit bit of trivia, uh, she was really close to John Hurt. So her screaming bloody murder when all this blood sprayed on her and her falling over, that's all completely a genuine reaction. Is like I I, I had to give credit to the production team to keep under wraps like how how like how grisly that scene is. Same thing with like the the alien creature. They he they tried to keep the alien uh, away from the rest of the cast as as much as possible, just to go for that most visceral, most genuine reaction when they went went to filming. And this is awesome. So, are you are you saying that this production, this like the secrecy behind this production, getting this reaction out of their actors, is the inspiration for MTV's punk, <laughs> like his Aston Kutcher? Somehow, I <laughs> doubt that that's the case. yeah i would probably say that my favorite scene from the film or my my personal favorite is when they first board the alien craft and they're just kind of exploring it because it feels so very strange and bizarre but it's also ominous and then there's that undercurrent of just threat that is there but the audience doesn't quite know where it's going to come from and it's just it it's, the tension is ooh, uh, delicious and mwah, like like a chef's kiss. It is just <laughs> delicious. And, and we're we're all just pawns and puppets or putty in really Scott's hands because like his design ethos is so so bent on trying to make you feel claustrophobic. Like whether you're in the alien craft or in the Nostromo. Or I said, or you're in an air vent. That whole scene with Dallas is just like. If you, I don't get claustrophobic, but I have a, pr- a little bit of a problem with that because you're in that close, tight proximity and you know the alien's coming. You just don't know from where. And it's that tiny space where it's like, where could you possibly go? Where could this thing possibly be coming from? It is, yeah. Ugh. Like, right. I highly recommend you play Alien Isolation because it, it, it just, it captures all the the claustrophobic terror control Ellen Ripley's daughter, uh, Amanda Ripley, and you're just 
you're you spend half the game crawling through vents and then and then uh and then you and then just to have a jump scare where a xenomorph like pops like reaches in with its claw and tries to get you uh just as like the vent starts to close oh so good the game is very good do you at least have a weapon in that game yeah similar to like the movie um you you can build you, you can build like uh, cocktail molotovs uh you you build your own flamethrower um you can also like distract uh the xenomorph by lighting a flare and throwing it in like the opposite direction but i i give it credit for alien isolation to like keep it so grounded to the original because like uh, and also giving it some new tricks like um like the ai in that game is uh it learns over time so like um it's like if you constantly rely on like throwing flares in the other opposite direction eventually near the end of the game it doesn't react to that so it, it smarts up and it uh or the fact that if another example if you constantly hide in lockers uh eventually in the game the creature learns or starts to check lockers more often uh it's really cool like that that is horrifying yes that is horrifying also i want to point out the nostromo itself is not a very pleasant place to live no <laughs> no well, it's a cargo hauler, isn't it? That's like the purpose of it as a ship. Sure, but I've I, if you've ever been inside like, you know, a trucker's truck, like the cabin, it's still, you know, it's not great, but it's not terrible either. And something that's so big, you'd think they'd make it look a little better. Uh, I think that they pulled a lot of that aesthetic from like Star Wars. Like it, like Star Wars was one of those big things look well worn or 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 on the verge of breaking all, all the time um or just held together by duct tape and design design aesthetic at the time that wasn't really seen because most of the time you you saw like these super sleek clean high t- like next gen uh ships yeah no the um it, it's just a cool like design the design aesthetic in this movie was fantastic like that's one of the cool things about it and uh, I, Chris, uh, have you t- took a deeper look at uh, uh, um, H.R. Giger's work? Because like, just the inside the ship, like like the walls, like how it's all like organic. It looks like it, like the inside of like a rib cage, or like the, all that aesthetic like shows up repeatedly. Giger's work. So I was wondering, like, what's your? Uh... I mean, I've seen I've seen some of his stuff. I don't like have any coffee table books because. That that would be a very awkward coffee table book to have, but I've seen some of his work, and it's all very, it's bizarre. It's very unsettling. It's um, but in a good way, of course. The kind, the kind that, the kind of way that art is supposed to make you feel. Uh, I will say, I actually do have a coffee table book of Geiger's work. <laughs> of course you do, Chris. Of course that you does do. Not surprise me, like in the slightest. Um, so I, I guess. Next thing I want to ask you guys, like, what do you feel about the legacy of Alien? Like, uh, it, uh, it, it was surprisingly, Ryan did mention it. Like, it was actually a cult classic because this, um, it made like 80 million at the box office on premiere, but it got mixed reviews. And then over time, it's, it's hailed as like one of the greatest sci fi movies of all time. So, like, oh, well, at least from, at least for me, I feel like, uh, 
Alien kind of represents like a paradigm shift in like how we view or how horror is like conceptualized. Because you see a lot of uh, properties that come out that are based on like an alien type framework. And they just don't work as well as Alien did just because of the novelty of the concept and just the the terrifying nature of the xenomorph itself too. Because um, even there was a... Um, that's a movie that just came out. I think it was called Underwater with Kristen Stewart, I think. And that one was billed as like alien un- alien at the bottom of the ocean. And that could be a great concept, but at the same time, it's like it's still derivative of that original foundation of alien. So like and I think the one of the biggest thing is part of it's the part of it's the xenomorph and the the fantastical, terrifying, unstoppable creature. But then also it's the sense of like being isolated without any resources and having to persevere and survive and endure that isolation. And I think there's something to be said about like such a foundational concept. Just it's like a it's like a big ripple and like everything else that comes in the wake of that is built on that initial pinprick. So it's it's definitely like a I don't know, it's it's a it's a building block of like sci-fi horror that you know a lot of it's built on and yeah i don't think we would the industry would be the same without that movie yeah and from my and from my understanding alien was like the first sci-fi horror film that a was actually really freaking scary and b wasn't so obviously a dude in a rubber suit like if you look at a lot of earlier sci-fi horror it's you get stuff like War of the Worlds or Them or Godzilla, where it's very like a it's broader concepts of you know the horror of X atomic power nuclear war whatever, but like even when you look at them, Godzilla is very clearly a guy in a rubber suit. The War of the Worlds you only really see the flying saucers, and in Them it was giant ants. All and then you have the earlier horror films where it's very clearly a dude dressed up, Frankenstein, Dracula, the Wolfman. This was one where it doesn't look human at all. And just the way that they shoot it, they keep it in the shadows, and the alien blends in with its surrounding, it's it's very hard to get a good sense of the creature. So And just to play off that, the cultural influence of that of the alien and the xenomorph is basically everywhere nowadays. You can show it basically anybody a picture of that guy, of that alien, and be like, oh my and they're like, Oh yeah, that's from alien, right? Like, that's something that just many, many people know. Um, and other uh, f- other pieces of fiction, like, incorporate, that's, uh, incorporate that, I guess, archetype of the scary alien creature. Um, uh, and it, it appears in so many other things. I know in our podcast, um, you illegally referenced Warhammer 40k, which is against <laughs> the rules. But um, I'm going to illegally reference it here. You know the Tyranids? Yes, they're yes. basically just alien, but a million of them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know? So there, it, it, it's in a lot of it, it. I guess it permeates the culture, is what I'm trying to say. It does, and um, I know. I mean, we we've, we've been talking about like the the effect about the creature about these humans in particular. Like another thing I want to point out in terms of legacy is like, you know, like Sigourney Weaver's character, like like Ellen Ripley, like the badass uh, female can do tough as nails character has become like an archetype of its own uh, i know i referenced it um not too long ago actually 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 on our last crossover um while i 
while i do have my gripes about the 2011 thing prequel slash sequel um you know, you're talking about prometheus no <laughs> no it's just like the the thing from 2011 but yes oh the true. thing oh okay thing. yeah um but yeah basically they just reskinned the old 1984 john carpenter thing but they placed a, a ripley type character as the main character and like you could see uh, even like uh, we, we we were joking on both podcasts about Terminator, like or Terminator Two Judgment Day. Uh, Sarah Connor, or she becomes um, like a, a Ripley badass in her own right. I'm try- I'm legit trying to think about uh, like prior to Alien, what kind type of what what's the closest archetype that we got prior to Ripley? I guess like Princess Leia uh, two years before she was a very very strong female protagonist and she didn't take any shit and uh she she kicked ass so i i feel like yeah, she wasn't even, she was wasn't the focus though she wasn't the focus that's true um but what are your thoughts on that what on the strong female or ripley just like, like like just the impact of ripley uh, as like a as a character as an archetype as a final girl well yeah she is a well i mean yeah she is a final girl but like uh in a, i, don't know. Yeah, I feel like, like calling her a final girl is insulting her though because it's, so. it's it's not like Alien's a slasher, and it's not like she's she's not like the pure virgin virgin uh, virginal character who's like whose purity is what saves her. No, it's her fucking competence is what saves her. Yeah, she's a bad motherfucker. To be fair, Sydney Prescott from Scream is also a final girl, and she is not a virgin. Yeah, but also Scream <laughs> is it? You scream. You can't really point to Scream and say, "Yeah, well, it's not like that," because yeah, Scream's a parody of the entire shebang. So true, true. But I no, I consider Ripley to be a final girl, right up there with Laurie Strode. It's just that Ripley, like she knows how to handle herself. She's sensible. Um, so oh I yeah, like a, I think she's a a twist on that final girl formula. Um, but yeah, I, I was just she, curious because like, she could I, be I, I she could be the final form of a final girl because she uses logic and she is one of the few people on that ship, apart from the only other woman on board, which I think there's something to be said for that, that the entire time used their brain and was like, no, we should at first follow protocol. No, we should, you know, get the fuck out of Dodge. They were all coming from a logical perspective. Everybody else on that ship was just like, no, for science. There's actually a character who I think is closer to to Ripley than than a final girl. And I would say that she actually shares a lot of similarities with Ash Williams from the Evil Dead series. Because in yeah, because in the first movie, they're the last per, per, uh, they're the last person to have an encounter with this particular monster. For Ash, it was Deadites. For Ripley, it was Xenomorphs. Um, then in future movies, it's their expertise that then carries them and protects them, and they get more and more competent at fighting whatever monster it is that they're fighting. So for Ripley, she's the person they... It's like, oh, there's a Xenomorph problem. Who do we talk to? We talked to this lady. Oh, we got Deadites. Who are we going to get? Well, how about the dude who just fell from the sky that's got a chainsaw for her hand? So I think there, she's probably closer to that kind of archetype than I would say for a final than a final girl. I you know what? I dig it. I dig it. hundred percent. I agree with you. Would you say it's accurate if Sarah Connor also falls that template? 
Ah, oh, God. It's hard to say what the term... Because say what you will about the Alien sequels, how good or how bad they are. At least there's a consistent fucking storyline. Every fucking... Every other fucking Terminator movie is like, we're ignoring this Terminator, this one, and this one, but not the first one. So... Well, I mean, to be fair, Terminator peaked at Terminator 2, and then everyone else was just riding on the coattails. So they were just trying to invent a story that would allow them to make more money. So instead of a story that actually naturally flowed from the rest yeah, of but, it. but like you had the so. one, you had that one Terminator film that nobody remembers where Sarah Connor is played by Daenerys Targaryen. Um, oh, was it that a TV show or is that an actual movie? No, that was an actual movie. Was that, was that okay. Genesis? Genesis? Was that Genesis but spelled weird? Yeah. Yeah, that was that was Genesis. Yeah, and then I you had the most that movie. Yeah, then you see nobody fucking remembers it. And then you had the most recent one Dark Fate. where what? Uh Terminator Dark Fate. Yeah, where John Connor dies and now Sarah Connor is I, I don't fucking know, man. <laughs> but regardless, that that's the problem with the Terminator franchise is the the characterization is confusing to say the least. Yeah. It hasn't. Uh, Alien hasn't yet suffered like the 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 four or five reboots. Oh, Alien's got its own problems, but <laughs> the reboots aren't one of them. Yeah. So here's a question: As someone who hasn't seen all of the Alien fiction, um, what are some of the problems that the franchise suffers from? Oh, oh, oh no! <laughs> are we? We're get, are, I'm, Have I opened a can? I mean, it's kind of kind of Pandora's box. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but it's not like. Pandora's box in a Star Wars kind of way of oh, well, actually, no, like you have a lot of alien films that are universally like decided to be like, okay, this is, genius, but it's just like, why did they do this kind of shit? Um, oh, I see. So there was the one that Josh Whedon was involved with, where the alien was like her kid or something. So this one was a uh, Alien Resurrection. So it involved Ellen Ripley clones, and it also involved um, actual human slash xenomorph hybrid um and like one of them was technically ellen ripley's kid and like i remember it was so it was, it was so ham-fisted it was like this really quote-unquote emotional scene where ellen ripley had to kill her own child which happened to be this, this grotesque human xenomorph hybrid um and like the whole reason why they, they had to try to get clones in the first place is because Ellen Ripley had like traces of alien queen DNA, and they they're trying to like extract that from her because, yeah, it it was yeah it was very very complicated. So then there was that one. Then there was Alien Three, where it's like, hey, do you remember all those characters that survived at the end of Alien Two who you really attached to? Yeah, fuck that noise. They're dead in the first minute, and what, Ripley's what? The, yeah, and then Ripley's the only survivor. Um, okay. So that was Alien 3. Then you talked about Resurrection. Alien vs. Predator is just, it's fun, but it's dog shit. Um, <laughs> well, like, I think we said that in the other podcast. It's basically glorified fan fiction. It really is. Yeah. Like, what if the Predators and the aliens fought each other? How cool would that be? And it, it, was, it was just like a throwaway joke at the end of Predator 2. It's like, they, they saw, like, the, the skull mounted on the Predator's trophy wall in a spaceship. And someone got the great idea. I was like, wait, let them fight. <laughs> and, then, and then you had like uh, AVP and AVP2. You know, the, and the, this was at a time where CGI was a lot, or I mean, CGI is better. Um, so they just, they just got crazy carried away with it. Um, it was all, 
all eye candy, no, no, like real soul. Mm, like no, no substance, but a lot of like, it's a fun. It's a what is it? Function over uh, form over function. Definitely, definitely. Mm. I mean, it looks. I mean, if you're looking for like a mindless blockbuster to watch, that's like terrible, but it's so bad, it's so good. Like, yeah, you know, go go at it. Um, but uh, you're not expecting like the like the intellectual emotional death of like the originals or. Um, mm-hmm. I, 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 um, yeah, I mean, it, it exists. I mean, and it, I don't know. I, I can't fault it because, like, I think you mentioned it. Like, AVP might have been someone's first experience into seeing a xenomorph for the first time. And then they can be sucked into this vast fan- franchise and mm-hmm. that mythology. So I can't fault it if that's someone's first xenomorph encounter. Of course. And- I, I can fault it. I can Because you could just, like, I don't know, re-release the original movie instead of trying to uh, just refresh and reiterate the same formula without bringing anything new to the table. Like, or, or well, if you bring something new, it's just terrible. Like, uh yeah, the and then it goes to that. Then it goes to the two AVPs, which were, like I said, terrible. And then it goes to Prometheus, which took a big old nasty dump on the lore of the Alien series. So it's like, hey, rem- so do you- so will you remember the space engineer or the yeah. space jockey? Yeah. So and how it looked super weird and alien, and it's like we don't know what this thing looked like, but it looked like it kind of had a trunk and stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, it took that and it's like, yeah, no, they're actually they look like people. They look like Why? eight foot tall basketball players, super pale Why? basketball players. <laughs> that sounds like dog shit. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was. You're getting it, Will. <laughs> and it's so sad. Like it had such a great cast. It had Fassbender, Guy Pierce, Edris Elba, uh, Charlize Theron. Um, so they had like, this rock star cast, and like, and, and it was still directed by Ridley Scott. But I think at this point, he, I think he lost track of what made but what was so enrapturing about the original you know because yeah i i I think i remember there was a part of that movie where they're like not only are the space jockeys like uh are we explaining them we're gonna explain that they were like the progenitors of the human race or something like that yes that's that that was a quote-unquote like plot twist and uh yeah and like I mentioned on the other podcast, like, like they they tried to create this MacGuffin called like the, the Black Goo that just messes with everyone's DNA. To basically, it's a substance that weaponizes your DNA, so you you, you evolve into like, these crazy crazier versions of of yourself. Um, and then like one thing led to another, and then you know, then eventually that's how the Xenomorphs were originally made. Um, it's just very sloppy. Uh, lore building. Yeah. Not Prometheus, but hearing you say that, it sounds stupid as hell. Yeah. Oh, and is, do you want me to make you guys even angrier? The Prometheus it. movie delayed Guillermo del Toro's At the Mountains of Madness because he saw it and he's like, oh man, this is going to be too similar. Oh, and he didn't want to like. Yep. I see. Yeah, That's and then and, and then it came out and it was terrible, and then and he's like, oh well, you know, maybe I can come back to this. 
but to boot, then there was Alien Covenant, which took the lore that Prometheus kind of built, and then just said, no, that's dumb. Your, your pile of dog shit's dumb. You want to know what you really want? Horse shit. And he just fucking threw a plate of horse shit at our feet and then shoved it in our faces like, you want to know where the aliens come from? Michael Fassbender made them. <laughs> like, uh, I think it's kind of Steve like... Jobs? What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, I Xenomorph. New from Apple. <laughs> Oh god, yeah, I, I kind of like it to like, like, I guess uh, really Scott sail or create built the ship, uh, with a bunch of other talented ship makers, and then set sail. It's beautiful, uh, and then you know that that should have been he should have left it at that. It should have been either leave it alone or or just trust this baby with you know like other talented filmmakers but i mean he tried that one and look where that ended oh, up. i guess i guess and maybe he took it reins back but like i don't know i mean with i i could see why he wanted or i mean i guess it's, i i actually i don't know i mean obviously it's it's a huge franchise so you know the cynical side of looking at it is like they you know they just wanted to make more movies for more bucks but i don't know if I honestly don't know if Ridley Scott felt he had more to say, or or maybe he was like, uh, it was kind of like a kissing the ring on the Don's finger. Like Ridley Scott, this is yours. You should. We want to do more movies. We want to build more and more. We want to build on this. You should take the helm. And maybe he, I don't know. I I I guess like if you had created something as amazing as Alien or the mythology or xenomorph could you resist that temptation to like ride ride again one more time uh or is it or would you would you have the constitution be like no this is good this is great uh i'll leave it as it is um no. that's a question for just no anyone. i mean I, I guess i can see it i can see it because it's almost like muhammad ali or michael jordan like because like michael jordan stayed in the game way too long and then you find him on the wizards like missing a dunk with like a clear lane you know, because he's, he's, he, I think he stole the ball and like no one was near him and he went up to go dunk and like it just bounced off and went up into the rafters. And I was like, yeah, it might be time to hang it up, Mike, or maybe you should try layups or something. So it's sad, sad to see it happen, but I can understand why someone who's achieved such heights, they still believe that, like, you know what? I can still do it the same way, same formula, boom. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. It's a yeah, shot yeah. Um, I think when a franchise as big as Alien gets to where it gets to its point, I think it's easy for the people making it to get lost in the weeds. Um, and in that, I guess, rush to try to come up with new content, they kind of forget what the original content was about. And, and, then, and then conversely you don't know what makes people happy, so you keep going back to tired tropes, and then mm -hmm. it just, the, the formula gets stale. Mm -hmm. so, which, um, <clears throat> Star Wars. <laughs> now, whoa, whoa. Did someone say Ryan Johnson was the best thing to happen to Star Wars? Goddamn right. <laughs> Him and David Fiolini, and at least Fiolini is still involved. Uh, well, speaking of Star Wars and the the, Ma the House of Mouse, uh, I did not know. Well, <laughs> <No. laughs> you did this. You did this. So after 21st Century Fox was acquired by Disney, 
it was a it was confirmed at the 2019 CinemaCon that future alien films are in development. Now, I don't know if this means a reboot, revamp, or like more sequels, but I'm not I'm not feeling it. Yeah, I mean the only way that the they could refresh the alien franchise is just to I don't know. I think even lumping it in with some other property would be stupid too. Like if someone from the Star Wars universe was finding a xenomorph, I don't think that would do anything for me. Maybe if they if they want to touch the universe, and I and I hate that I'm even suggesting this because this goes against like every fiber of my being. But I think the an acceptable option if they are going to do more alien movies would be to do sort of like a Halloween situation where you do a direct sequel from, we'll say the last good one, and you just keep the story going however many years past that and sort of forget the rest of them the way Halloween 2018 did because that was very successful and it was really fucking good. And so... Then, uh, Terminator Dark Fate tried to emulate that model and it, it kind of fell on its face. So it's a very well, tricky line. Well, they didn't do. know what they were doing, did they? <laughs> <laughs> so who's the guy who did uh, that Halloween movie? It was Danny something. Because uh, he was the guy who did Eastbound and Down. Danny McBride. Uh, I hate that man. Yeah, Danny McBride. So he, I think he, uh, he wrote and directed that new Halloween. Uh, Danny McBride was mistaken. also involved in Alien Covenant. Uh, he was one of the actors. Yeah, he was. was. He? <laughs> yeah, he was. Wasn't he the oh. ship captain? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it's been a while. Uh, oh, I take so it back. In the Statement withdrawn, Your Honor. <laughs> Statement withdrawn. Um, um, I know that there's other more recent stuff with alien like in the like in terms of comic books i know audible in, in general has been like churning out some some um like new audio books and stuff um i'm not really that optimistic but like again i'm also the type of person to like i'll judge it when i'll see it but i can't say my favorite thing coming out of alien in recent years um actually i think it was i want to say it's last year um a high school performed a play of the of this film of the, of the original alien um and it was so great that they had an encore performance and uh Sigourney Weaver was in the audience she had, she was a special guest that attended that cool. play cool and it's like hell yeah a bunch of high school kids reenacted redid the famous chestburster scene with like really high production value and like they made all the costumes uh, even like the xenomorph suit out of out of like recycled materials and stuff like hell yeah that's what i want i want i want aliens by that same high school that'd be great and we actually and we actually ripped open trevor's chest for the air for the for the chest bursting scene <laughs> yeah, no one liked trevor anyway so who cares <laughs> we had to be authentic it's like that movie the gallows where they actually kill the kid for the school play Jeez, that, that was a terrible movie. Don't go see it. <laughs> I've never heard of it, but <laughs> yeah, no, it's a terrible movie. A uh, kid dies in a freak accident at a play because they built a working gallows for their uh, for their theater performance, and they end up hanging the kid. <laughs> that just that's okay. Okay, <laughs> and then his ghost haunts the high school theater where he died. 
Yeah, no, it's terrible. It's absolutely <laughs> terrible. You should totally go see it. Um, <laughs> um, also, Halloween was directed by David Gordon Green, not Danny McBride. Oh, well then, how was Danny McBride connected to that? He then? might have been. I remember seeing his... Uh, oh, it was, maybe he uh, was an EP. Danny McBride helped write uh, Halloween 2018 along with... Uh, Got it. Green so he was one of the writers with John Carpenter. Okay, there we go. Sorry about that. I misspoke. I know he was connected to it somehow, though. Uh, well, I think I think we're. Uh, I think this is a, a great moment to put a pin in it. Um, does anyone have any last thoughts about the 1979 Alien? I give it five out of five xenomorphs. I I nice. still think this is great. I really do. <laughs> yeah. No, the movie really holds up. Um, oh yeah. It's. Like, it's scary, it's well-directed, it's well-acted. Um, I love the aesthetic. The the sci-fi tape recorder, not, not uh, cassette tape aesthetic that you got a lot in the 70s with, like, the screens and the and the tech. Oh, I, I love that. I live um, for that kind of stuff. Yeah, and for a movie in the, for a movie that came out in the late 70s, the effects are pretty good. And they hold up really well, like, today. <laughs> Um, I would give it six out of five Xenomorphs because uh, this movie, I think, is like a perfect movie. Um, my one gripe, or you have gripe, it's like I wish I, I, I one, I will forever rule the day HBO lied to me because they told me there was a three-hour director's cut and it wasn't three hours, but apparently the original original cut of this movie was three hours. And um, Will and I were talking about this. Uh, Early in the, earlier today, I wish we were recording it, but um, there's like a bunch of deleted scenes, um, and there's like some stuff that never made it into the original cut. Like there's supposed to be another fight scene between um, Parker and the alien, um, and how the alien almost got uh, jettisoned. Um, into space but that plan failed um i wish that was in the cut uh, it's a, it's in the original novelization of the film um obviously um ridley scott considered the theatrical cut uh his magnum opus like he prefers that over the director's cut it, to him yeah for him the director's cut was more of like a marketing marketing strategy because like uh that was it was made a conjunction in 20 or 2003 for the release of this special anniversary box set um so he cut out a bunch of the long tracking shots of the original film which established much of the tone i feel like uh and he replaced that with two key scenes one where ripley established her authority her strength or uh, and her authority much earlier in the film than we had in the theatrical cut and the second one the second scene which i th wish that was in the original cut as well is ripley uh finds the alien nest uh and he uh, she finds dallas who's like half dead and she finds brett who's been slowly turned into like this colony of eggs uh and then dallas scree like weekly talks to ripley like please kill me and then she tearfully flamethrowers the nest and kills dallas and, and brett i wish that scene was made into the film they they they, they repurpose it later for like alien resurrection um 
but I could see why like Ripley's vision, or I'm sorry, Scott's vision. Uh, you wanted to keep it really high and tight and also keep the tension. So I still respect the two hour cut we had, but I just want more of that original. I want to see that original three hour cut in all of its unfiltered glory. Cause like there's a, even the, even like the 30, 40 minutes of deleted scenes I was watching is super fascinating. Um, so if anyone's interested in that, uh, I, we will provide that link, um, when the show goes up. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's just a really good movie. Like, like no, no jokes, no snarky comments. It's just a fantastic film. The acting is fantastic. Yeah. And it's also just sort of really passed into the cultural zeitgeist to the point where it's kind of like watching the exorcist now where you get what everybody's referring to, but it still has the staying power, which I think the exorcist might lose a little bit on where it's like, Oh yeah, I've seen this scene parodied so many times that I can't, that I have a hard time taking it seriously. Alien is very much a case of while you still parody a lot of the stuff, it's still super effective in like film and stuff. So yes, I still had an Oh shit moment when the face hugger or when the uh, Xenomorph burst out of the guy's chest. Um, Like I, I was prepared for it and I knew it was happening, but when it's, but when it comes, you're still like, Oh shit, here it is. It's the scene. Oh man. That I had that moment when you first see the Xenomorph pop out in the shuttle at the end. It's like, Oh shit, it's still there. Like I, I legit, like when it starts trying to grab at, at, uh, at, uh, Ripley, uh, I jumped. It was like, Oh man, I know, I knew this was going to happen, but it still got me. I, I, I really love that. Adrian, how about you? Uh, for me, like, I just think as a whole collective, I mean, well, one, I would give it like 6.7 out of 5 face huggers. Because, I mean, it's that good. But then also, just the fact that it, um, like, it's similar to you, like, you already know what's coming, but it's, it's something about, like, the like taking the ride that's still very novel each time you see it. Cause I mean, even though you know what's coming, it's like the movie is it's so well crafted that like it'll load you into a sense of security and like, okay, well I'm on long. Holy shit. God damn it. I knew that was supposed to happen. Like it'll still, it's still refreshing in that way. And I think that just speaks to one, the writing, but then also to the direction and just the execution of the whole thing. So as a product, it's very, very fresh and it deserves to be the foundational piece that it is. So I would just only hope that the any future installments would try to bring something new and fresh to the table um, and add something to it other than horse shit <laughs> or dog shit. So, <laughs> Well, if we're lucky, Adrian, we, we, we could use your idea of, of double downs and inducing food comas into the new movie. movies officially sponsored by kfc i think that's well i mean it's a it's a scientific fact scientific fact that heart disease kills more than xenomorphs so and maybe if you put those together heart disease can kill a xenomorph xenomorphs even have hearts maybe uh damn it quit using Uh, your logic No, that's a legit question because the blood they have blood so does it need the blood to pump, though? 
Uh, I would assume it does, so it has something akin to a heart, but if the if oxygen isn't traveling through the blood, because they can survive in space, which imply although we don't know how long they can survive in space for. Yeah. It could just be a case of, oh, they can last for a little bit, but eventually they do need oxygen or something. I don't know. They do need the feed. Ship uh, looked pretty fucking abandoned for like a while when they but remember, the eggs were also kept in a, like a storage kind of space, and there was like a sheen above it. Then that um that John Hurt falls into, mm. so maybe it was maybe it was a preservation technique of some sort, like a t- uh, stasis field. Okay, hold on. Sorry, I'm sorry for this, but did did Bilbo Baggins know about the alien? Like, because, because when I'm thinking about it, because I'm thinking about his monologue and he's talking about how it's the perfect killing machine, that implies that they know what they're looking for. Um, I mean, he spent well, a whole bunch of time collating, as you would put it. But I, I assume, assuming, assuming like the company, uh, you know, way, later on we will know them as Wayland Yutani is as nefarious and like they're like the your stereotypical cyberpunk mega corporation. Um, I would say they would probably they they probably had some resources on deciphering the original distress beacon because like they, they 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 did mention or mother mentioned like pro- protocol one was capture the alien su- specimen, so they knew that. I feel like they would they uh, they got that distress beacon somehow deciphered it uh, whatever MacGuffin or uh, they got through to that um, and then you you do see Ash like take a very passive or, like a quote unquote objective standpoint like he never leaves the ship to go exploring with them he's monitoring all the all the cameras and all the audio. Um, and he's also like taking great pains to be like really secretive and isolative um, with keeping watch over John Hurt and his development. Um, that's a really good question. I don't know. Well, also with Christopher's original question as far as Bilbo Baggins knowing about the Xenomorph ahead of time, that all that just makes me want to a story where Bilbo goes to Valinor. Uh, because he's been exposed to the ring, and somehow he gets like humanity develops uh, interstellar travel, <laughs> and then he gets he finds himself on that trip where it's actually Bilbo Baggins could a, with a xenomorph. Could a xenomorph and see him while he was wearing the know. one ring? Oh, Ooh. well, well, this is this Real is question. assuming mm. this is assuming a xenomorph has Oof. eyes to begin with. We like, like, because like I, I know in H.R. Giger's paintings, Oof. it's drawn with eyes, but um really scott explicitly wanted his creatures to not have eyes so we we don't know if it could track people down by like smell or if it's like a shark where it could sense like electromagnetic disturbances in the air uh who knows the thing with the ring too is i i don't i'm not 100 percent on the specifics here but does it i don't think it like t- just turns people invisible i think it also sends them to like a different realm that's like parallel to ours which is why f- which is why f- so, yeah, because for the ring rates, right? No, but then, but then when, yeah, oh no, no, I was talking about when, uh, when Frodo put it on and yeah, Mount yeah, Doom, no, you're right. and then he was walking yeah, away, Gollum. but then, uh, uh, yeah, Smeagol, like, Smeagol, yeah, jumped on him and bit yes. his ring off. I guess it just lets them see the rates in their truth form, then, or something. <laughs> A good question for another time. 
on that note, thank you for listening to another episode of Left for Dread. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Everything helps. You can listen to us on iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify every Friday. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Left for Dread Pod. You can find us on Facebook, and you can check us out on our website at leftfordread.com. And thank you so, so much to the members of Iron, Silver, and Salt. Uh, always love doing these uh, guest episodes, and this is our second crossover episode. Um, I know we were talking with Rye. We might want to pitch you some more crossovers, so we'd love to do this. We'd love to do this again. Um, where could everyone find you on the interwebs? Well, you can find us on Twitter, at Iron, Silver, Salt. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook. So you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ironsilversalt. Yeah. Uh, you can also email us at ironsilverandsalt at gmail.com. Excellent. Well, thank you again, Chris, Will, Adrian. We love having you on. Thank you so much for exploring uh, uh, LZ426 uh, on the eve of Alien Day. Uh, thank you for being on this journey with us. And thank you all you dreadfuls out there. Hope you uh, enjoy Alien Day. Hope you're Hope you're not breaking quarantine. Listen to Ripley. Oh man, we didn't even don't go into quarantine. That. We, didn't we didn't even, even go into that. It. Oh yeah. my god. This movie is just what happens when you break quarantine. It's what happens when you break quarantine and when big business is going to sell your life out for a small Okay, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I will this will turn into another hour. I'm done. Good night. Thank you. Thank you for having us. <laughs> okay, don't be quarantined. Don't trust the, your corporations. Stay dreadful. Stay dreadful. <laughs>